Hello and welcome to your courageous journey. This is Julie Sickles. And this is Julie Farber. And we are so excited to be here with you today for an interview. If you're new to our podcast, our format is that we have an interview with someone who shares with us part of their story. And then we follow up the next week. And Julie and I both have a discussion about the episode and pick a personal development principle that we discuss together. So today we are interviewing Todd Wingsgard. So a lot of you probably already realized that I drive for Uber and Lyft. And so he is the first one that Julie and I, neither one of us knew before this. So he was one of my passengers and was a really cool, interesting experience. I can't remember. Did I drop you off at the airport? I think I did. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was the airport. So we had a little bit of time to talk and we were just driving and we passed by a very significant spot, which he started talking about and went through his experience. And I just asked him at one point, I'm like, hey, would you mind telling your story on a podcast? And he was like, well, no, I think that's fine. So here we are. Yeah. If you, Todd, just want to kind of introduce yourself, tell us a little bit more about you to get to know you a little bit better. Sure. Uh, And I'm happy to contribute in any meaningful way. So I appreciate the invitation. I am a, a father of four kids. They range from 23 down to 15. Um, I was recently remarried, so I was thinking of my youngest stepson. We'll get to that Mm. later, I guess. And I do have four stepchildren, a wife since November 25th. Okay. So this is brand new. And uh, I had lost my previous wife in an accident, my wife of 25 years, Mm -hmm. uh, in July of 2021. I live in Pleasant View, Utah, here in the northern end of the state. And um, just uh, really enjoy the outdoors. When I'm not working, I do uh, public speaking and uh, management training, coaching, development with uh, a large multinational company. And so I do a fair amount of travel. A lot of it is online now, but uh, Julie picked me up to take me to the airport. I was probably flying to, I think it was New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And then the next day I needed to be in Arizona. So that's kind of the nature of my job. I crisscross the country, some international work. And uh, when I'm not Working, I'm uh, usually up skiing or uh, water skiing, climbing, hiking, biking, mountain biking uh, with my kids. And uh, we just really enjoy getting outside. But uh, I've lived here most of my life. We were in uh, Kansas City, Missouri for about seven and a half years. Go Chiefs. (laughs) And uh, I am LDS. So I served an LDS mission in Germany and Austria, where my mother is from. And then uh, lastly, I thought I would uh, just share that. Oh, I forgot my train of thought that I'm getting old and I can't remember what I <laughs> say. Uh, but no, I'm just happy to be here and, and share something that might be meaningful to somebody else. That's yeah, perfect. we are so glad to have you and that you're willing to share your story with us. Oh, I remember what it was. It was my education. I don't know if that oh. plays in, but I have a bachelor's in communication, a master's in business administration, and a PhD in leadership and organizational change that I can tap into for a lot of the work that I do. So, yeah, that's awesome. Where did you go to school? For your um, different degrees? Undergraduate was Weber State. Okay. Um, MBA was through University of Phoenix. And uh, my PhD is with Walden University out of Minneapolis. Oh, okay. Nice. That's really cool. So I have to ask, I grew up like kind of a lake person. Where do you water ski? Uh, Willard Bay or Pineview, usually. Okay. Summer, we might take a trip or two up to Bear Lake. Okay. That's really cool. 
and we spend a few nights on the lake since it's kind of a cabin cruiser. We'll sleep on the lake and wake up and fish or ski and just hang out. It's a lot of Oh, fun. nice. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, Utah's a great place for all of those outdoor activities that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. There's so much to do. It's great. Yeah. Well, let's get into your story. I know like I when I introduced I mentioned that, that there was a spot that you pointed out. I'm not sure if that's where you would want to start, but your Sure. experience with Yeah, I don't remember the exact discussion, but it probably had something to do with family, you know, kids and current marital status came up uh, and I mentioned that I was uh, widowed and we happened to be driving by the spot in Marriott Slaterville where uh, my wife was killed while uh, riding her bike. Um, she had been out for a, a training ride, maybe 20 miles, uh, preparing to do a longer ride up in Cache Valley with her friend two days later when uh, stopped at a stoplight, the semi to her left turned right And the last four axles of his 80,000 pound trailer uh, rolled over her and pretty much took her life instantly. And so every time I drive by, it's a very poignant reminder. There's a little, you know, PTSD associated with that spot. And so, yeah, that's where we were driving by. It was right where that happened. You also mentioned to me kind of how you found out. Yeah. So speaking of boating, I was... getting the boat ready to take out for a couple of nights out on the lake. But actually, I think I wrote this down in my journal, and I probably should just read some of those notes to explain exactly how it went down. When I learned that uh, she had passed, one of the most poignant thoughts that I kept having over and over again was, why me? This isn't possible. I, I can't even believe this happened. I was up in the boat, taking the cover off, you know, loading it, getting ready for her to come back from her ride. And we were going to head out on the lake for a couple of days. And three highway patrolmen, Utah Highway Patrolmen, walked up my driveway, approaching me, kind of looking like they were making sure they had the right address. I didn't realize until later that they didn't exactly know who the victim was in this accident and where she lived until after our encounter. Their questions were more of a quiz. Mm hmm The officer said, can I speak to Jenna Wangsgard? Me. She's not here right now. Officer, do you know where she is? Me. She's on a bike ride, kind of said in the form of a question, anticipating they may suggest otherwise. mm hmm The officer cleared his throat and said, <clears throat> okay, we need to go inside and talk. mm hmm And then me in my head, I don't want to hear whatever it is that you want to tell me. Just like the movies, right? This is playing out like a screenplay. And uh, put my hands on my head as I walked into the house, just trying to catch my breath. I know these details because it was all captured on my security camera outside of my garage. And I got to rewatch and rehearse those details over and over again. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Probably some of both. That's how I found out. It was about two hours after the accident had happened. They had been doing a lot of forensics work and cleanup. But they only had her cell phone, which was the screen was completely cracked, but it was on. And so uh, somebody at dispatch said, well, hold the power button down uh, and it'll call 911. And so it did. And 911 was able to show that the number belonged to a Jana Wings guard. And so they did a quick search for you know, address records, found an address up here and came up to confirm that this was that Jana Wings guard. And, Indeed it was. So that's how they found me. So in the moment, 
I just imagine like myself kind of being in the state of shock to find something out like that, you know, because earlier the day, what you were probably just going about life as usual, you know, talked and everything. So was it like that for you? Were you in shock for a while? How long did it take you to kind of get your bearings? And I mean, I was definitely in a state of shock. I know there are various types where somebody might even pass out. That didn't happen, but it was that deep, deep disbelief. And then, you know, realizing that I'm kind of breathing shallow and I need to catch my breath. And if I'm being honest, I don't think that state of shock has ever gone away. Yeah. Throughout mm -hmm. two years and seven months later, to some degree, you know, mm -hmm. I uh, only had my one daughter home. I ran up, or no, I take that back. I had my two youngest home, my daughter and my son. They were around, uh, let's see, 15 and uh, 12. And I ran upstairs and I just threw open her door and just said, mom's gone and told her what the police had just told me. And we were both just standing there stunned looking at each other. And we hugged and ran back downstairs. And the, the police offered to take me anywhere if I needed to go somewhere to tell somebody else. And of course, the people on my mind, first and foremost, were her parents. Mm -hmm. They live about five minutes away is all. Oh, okay. And so my daughter and I jumped into this policeman's car. I, I felt like I probably could have driven myself down there, but I thought, you know, I need these authorities to stand there and explain what happened after I revealed the initial shocking news. Because I mean, not that they wouldn't believe me, but I think there's a little bit more gravity that comes when you've got, you know, three officers there to yeah. control you and, and give you answer questions and try to help you sort out what to do next. And I wasn't done talking to them for sure. So we jumped in the car, we drove down halfway there, I realized I left my 12 year old son in his bedroom. Now he has Down syndrome and autism. And so he has a camera in his room so we can keep track of him and help him if he needs help. And uh, when I told the officers that I left him home, I said, you know, he's probably okay for a few minutes. There's a camera in his room, I can see right here on my phone what's going on. Yeah, he's there playing with his toys. So let's tell them and then we'll head back. So my state of shock, I neglected to remember that there was somebody else home. Mm -hmm. Walked into the living room of my in-laws and my mother-in-law was there. And she could tell that something was wrong just because of my affect, my face. And it was awful because in the same room where, you know, 26 years prior, I had asked her father's permission to marry her. And we had celebrated so many family events. I'm now telling them that she's gone. It was just kind of this crazy flashback and father-in-law was getting ready in their room and she ran in to the bathroom to tell him the news. And then of course I heard him instantly start to wail. You know, he's just also in a state of disbelief and came out and they were able to talk briefly with the officers, but immediately, you know, we're people of faith. There are people of deep, deep faith. My mother-in-law is immediately consoling me. Yeah you know, give me hugs and we're trying to figure out who to call next. And so I'm on the phone with my parents and my siblings and she's on the phone with her kids. My two oldest sons worked at scout camp up on the southern border of Yellowstone in Wyoming. And it's very remote, but they do happen to have a satellite phone connection. So I was able to call up there and reach one of them right away and, and just tell them over the phone, which is the worst phone call you ever want to make. Mm -hmm. Just tell a child that they lost their mom. And they're, you know, they're alone. They're not alone. They're surrounded by amazing people who were able to 
comfort them. My other son was still on a hike coming back into camp, maybe within 20 or 30 minutes. And they, so they said, as soon as he gets home, well, back to camp, we'll have him call you. And so they called back about half an hour later and I had to go through that again. And uh, fortunately, they were dismissed of their duties, able to jump in my son's car and immediately begin the four-hour drive home to be here and and to kind of go through all the grief and family gatherings and preparations for a funeral that we were now in the middle of. So, yeah, that's kind of how the next few moments played out. And, And you can tell, I mean, going through the details, it's hard to recall them without getting a little emotional yeah i think that's probably to be expected i lost my grandmother 20 years ago i can't remember no 19 years ago um yeah i still have times where i get emotional like finding out about losing her and stuff so i think that's probably something that well this might be a tangent for another podcast but a month to the day later my 98-year-old grandmother passed away, oh. and uh, she adored Jana. In fact, she would call her almost every day to just talk. She couldn't hear her, but she would talk. And oh. um, every time we visited her, she would rant at some point, why am I still here? I need to you know, die. And we would say, no, we love you. We want you to stay here. And, of course, when she came to the mortuary to see Jana's body, mm-hmm. uh, it was devastating. And that was the same thing. She's weeping over her you know, casket saying, take me with you, take me with you. And who's to say that uh, she didn't yeah. come and get her, you know, because yeah. she was somewhat very healthy and quick decline in those next four weeks. So when she had gone for her ride, how long had you expected her to be out for? Were you already I was, wondering? I was right here in my office in meetings. And usually, you know, she leaves around 6.30, you know, it's light by 5.30, 6 o'clock in the middle of July. And she would maybe be gone an hour and a half. So I probably expected her close to 8, 8.30. But I was, you know, in meetings with clients and I went upstairs and realized, oh, she's still not home. She must have decided to take a longer route. You know, that's just the natural thought that I had. And went about packing some things and went out to the boat, like I said, and was getting that ready. And by then it's about, I think, 10 or 10.30. It happened at, I think, 8.30-ish. So then those officers came up and explained it all, why she wasn't home yet. You got the answers you never wanted to hear. Yeah. In fact, there was a call with a client that was supposed to happen that I would have been in the middle of during their visit to uh, tell me, and it got canceled. And it was due to a failure on our part, meaning our company, we hadn't prepared a report that they needed. And I was trying to salvage the call saying, no, 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 we can still go through this. This is really important for your people. And they're like, nope, we're going to reschedule. And I said, okay. So I'm very grateful that that call got rescheduled. Otherwise, you know, these officers, the front door is right outside of my basement office window here, but they would have been, you know, probably beaten on the door and trying to get a hold of me. And I would have been in the middle of a client session, having to come back down and say, I got to go, you know, and the work I do is, dedicated time like it's you know two hour sessions or six hour sessions where i can't have interruptions because there are 30 people uh, that have signed up to learn something and i'm there to teach so i was really grateful that that got canceled so that i was free yeah yeah so you could be available so in the i guess the next coming months or you know however long like 
how was it that you and your family were able to grieve and, and cope? Like what kind of things happened or? Yeah, you know, everybody grieves differently is an important lesson that I've taken away from this whole experience. Even if I expect others to grieve like me. Mm -hmm. So I shared the thought earlier of why me? And as I've had time to process it, I thought, you know what? Why not me? I mean, these kinds of tragedies happen all the time, all over the world. They just don't happen to me, <laughs> right? That was my thought. As the officer was telling me, I'm like, you, you have the wrong address. You're talking to the wrong person. Can I help you find the right house? But no, it was my turn mm -hmm. to get, you know, devastating news. And I don't mean that to be selfish. Clearly, the worst of this accident happened to Jana, not to me. And I don't doubt that even to this day, because I believe in life after death, she grieves for our loss. But I can only know what's in our realm for certain. And I cannot fathom that something so awful, something that you only read about in the news, had happened to me. And so there's this theme of disbelief, this undercurrent every minute of every day for a long time. The only word I could use to describe it was unfathomable. Like this is unfathomable fathomable that this just happened a lot of swings of emotion almost none from the kids so this is why I say people grieve differently and I've had to come to appreciate that I didn't find it difficult to show and share my emotions I could cry on the spot and never be embarrassed by it it felt natural it felt right then 10 minutes later I could focus on the laundry or cleaning bathrooms or preparing meals which by the way was something that my wife primarily did and was a huge void in my life and something that I had to step up and figure out right away. It felt perfectly normal to go back and forth between grief and normalcy, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, everyone grieves differently. And I think for you, you know, having your faith and your belief in life after death, I think that can bring a lot of comfort to people. And I think it does bring a lot of comfort to people who lose loved ones because it's something that we all do it's all it's gonna happen yeah. we all die yeah spoiler alert yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. not gonna make right. it out of alive but yeah. you know the hardest part of that little fact is yeah maybe at 89 or 79 how about not 49 the timing was yeah. just so devastating and painful of course and unexpected that's one piece of advice i would give to people too is it's uh, never too early to plan for your final fences and uh, funeral and preferences, right? Yeah. This was something that I found shocking in the immediate aftermath after the accident, like the next day or two, I suddenly found myself doing things I hadn't expected to do for another few decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Picking a cemetery, there was a debate which cemetery she would be buried in, uh, buying burial plots, buying a casket and a vault, walking through the casket showroom in the basement of the mortuary with my kids it was just so eerie like what mm -hmm. am i doing this is so crazy writing an obituary designing and ordering a headstone which was quite a long process ordering you know flowers for a funeral mm -hmm. and this had naturally caused me to think about well how prepared am i to pass on <laughs> i want the process as easy and as simple as possible for my kids I don't resent Jenna for not having prepared for this, not in the least. If anything, it was a sacred honor to be in that position to attend to her final details. I only wish that I knew from her 
more directly that what we did mm-hmm. matched her preferences. But yeah. it was weird. It was really weird going through those things that, you know, you expect your parents will pass before you. And my parents and my in-laws were a part of the process to some degree. And it was probably strange for them to think this is my son having to choose these things. It's not us. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. It feels backwards, right? When your kids pass on before you do, it seems like it's the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. Or as a kid losing a parent that like young, it's just, I don't know. It sounds like for you, it's been harder in a lot of ways than for your kids. Really shocking. Absolutely. I mean, not to speak for them, it may have been just as hard for them. They just haven't expressed that. But I mean, I think about what we generally strive for in life. We strive for companionship. My kids, since her death, have found companionship and got married and finished high school and went out on a you know mission. He has a girlfriend who's in Argentina and they will likely get married within the year, I would guess. And they'll be together, right? And so when all the kids leave, who's left, right? Mom and dad. And so, you know, losing that companion that you've been so close to for two and a half decades, person who helps you, you know, your partner in taking care of everything, person who knows you inside and out, person who sacrificed along with you to save money for retirement, you know, and you finally get to a place where you're not thinking about money and you're thinking about the possibilities of what retirement looks like. And then the rug is just pulled out from underneath you. One of the questions in my mind was, what, what was it all for? What's the point? Why do I have you know, money saved? Well, I know now <laughs> that I'm remarried and have other obligations, but mm-hmm. it was painful to lose that companion who you expected to be there forever. Yeah. It really changed your whole vision of what your future was going to look like, right? You had that image in your mind and it was very clear and you had planned for a long time and all of a sudden you kind of had to completely readjust and try and figure things out, which really is probably not been an easy process the last few years. There's been a lot of learning, a lot of growth for sure, a lot of confirmation of things that I, I believed. You know, people of faith usually don't have their faith tested in this way until maybe later in life. Um, but what was nice to experience is that it could stand up to that tragedy, you know, and what it took to process through that and even expand on, expound on, uh, grow that faith to an even greater place than it was before. Here's another thought that I had written down about that relationship with Jana. A great relationship is like having a clear map of where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. When you lose your life partner, half of that map feels torn away. Mm-hmm. Where are the obstacles, the trails, the hazards, the viewpoints on the other side of that map? Mm-hmm. I wish I had paid closer attention. I wish I had committed all those topographical features to memory. I'm lost. Mm-hmm. Then, after enough time has passed, attempting to navigate the remaining half of the map alone, it feels right to tape a piece of paper onto the missing half and begin drawing a new path forward. Mm-hmm shaping a new tomorrow, seeking love, life, and passion across new horizons. I suppose, and this is prior to meeting my now wife, 
sometime in the future, I will cross one of those horizons and find the missing half of my original map. And then, as though I hadn't noticed all along, a bigger, more beautiful life has been led, one with just the right amount of joy, struggle, adventure, love, and growth that have suddenly prepared me for forever. That's beautiful. That, that is a really good perspective to take on it. I like your analogy of a map. I actually can relate to it. Not something I ever came up with myself, but I've myself had things like that happen to me in my life. I haven't lost a spouse like through death, but I have been divorced. And so I do kind of have that sense of loss, you know, yeah. feeling lost. Yeah. And feeling like half of your life was ripped away. Yeah. So you have been remarried. And so was there any... I guess, like, significant change for you where you just decided, you know, I should probably put myself back out there? You know, I had a hard time with that originally, the idea of dating and getting married. Truth be told, I think part of me was a little bit excited that I could, at some point in the future, find love again and that that would help part of the you know, healing process. I created a profile on uh, the dating app Mutual toward the end of um, November 2021. So it was about four months later after her passing. And I wanted to know what that process was going to look like. I quickly matched with a handful of wonderful women who uh, became friends. Mm -hmm. One of them who I'm now married to, uh, but she lived far away. So I never really pursued dating yet. But I was in no way, I realized this after a first couple of days, I was in no way prepared to give myself emotionally Mm -hmm. to someone else. I was still deeply in love and I am, you know, to some degree, still deeply in love with Jana and, and reeling from that loss. There were deep feelings of guilt just thinking about possibly becoming intimate with another person. It took almost a year and a half before I felt prepared to explore a serious relationship. I, I would tell these wonderful women that I, you know, go out with and become friends with. I said, you know, I just, this sounds cliche. I'm not emotionally available like my emotions are tied up somewhere else, but I really, really want to make some great friends and see where these friendships could take me once my heart is open again. So getting into the story of Tasha, my wife, still getting used to saying that. It was my my girlfriend and then it was my fiance. That's my wife. You know, we matched pretty quickly, probably within the first 20 or 30 minutes of being on the app ever. Wow. And uh, she lives in Henderson, Nevada, near Las Vegas. And I kind of written off the idea of trying to pursue a long distance relationship, even though it's relatively close compared to where some people, you know, live much further away. But uh, I knew I wasn't emotionally available and I didn't want to lead anybody on to thinking that I was, you know, prepared to advance a relationship into something serious. And so just these uh, lunch dates and dinner dates, movie show or whatever, felt safe with these uh, other find people. But uh, I hung on to this person, you know, in the app that I had matched with. And we texted a little bit, uh, had a FaceTime call in December of 21. But then I was largely absent from the conversation for most of 22. I mean, we texted here and there. I think I reached out to her on Mother's Day and said, Happy Mother's Day. And that summer, my daughter for her birthday said, I want to go see Elton John. Mm-hmm. And he was playing in Las Vegas on November 1st of 22. And so uh, while I wasn't terribly excited about 
particularly that concert and having to travel for it. I thought, oh, wait, I'll come with you. And here's a chance for me to maybe take this great person out to lunch. So I had reached out to her and said, hey, I'm going to be in town on the first. I think you'd be available for a quick lunch. My daughter and I are going to a concert that night. And so she made arrangements. She taught school at the time and made arrangements to slip away, go to lunch with me. And we had a great time. Our stories differ on how absent I was from the conversation in the next month or two. And she'd kind of given up on me. She should probably be here to defend herself. But <laughs> by Christmas time, we were talking about what we had done. This is Christmas of 22. And she had said they'd gone skiing up at uh, Brian Head in uh, South Central Utah. And I said, oh, well, I ski all the time. You know, I've got a season pass to snow base. And that's why I'm wearing this black turtleneck right now. I'm still in my ski gear. And there was this exchange where I was we were kind of calling each other's bluffs. And I said, well, you should come up skiing sometime. She said, well, I'd love to. And I said, well, I've got points on Delta. I can fly up. She's like, let's do it. And I'm like, how about President's Weekend? She's like, I'm free. And I'm like, okay, I'm booking it right now. She's like, let's do it, you know? So all of a sudden, I have this weekend date planned with this girl that I just had lunch with a couple months prior and that was the beginning of the end, so to speak, because ever since that weekend, you know, we couldn't stand to be away from each other. And either she was up or I was up every other week, every third week. And it wasn't until, you know, last January that I could feel my heart opening up. You know, my late wife's cousin, who she was so close to, lost her husband 24 years ago to cancer. And they were a very young couple, had I think, three kids, only married for not even 10 years. I've gained a lot of wisdom, comfort from her uh, cousin, Becca, who's been very close to us and close to me since this tragedy happened. And she has made it clear on more than one occasion that her first love, her first husband, Curtis, has a room in her heart that belongs to him and nobody else, but that her heart has grown space to love another person. And she's now since been married to Wade for 20 years. Mm. And uh, she felt like her next mission in life was to help him raise his kids, not only her three, but his four, I think he has four. Mm. And uh, they have a beautiful marriage, but she still has that room in her heart. And I kind of feel that metaphor works for me, that I have a room in my heart for Jana that will never belong to anybody else. But that my heart has increased its capacity to love and to be loved again in a special way. And so we got engaged August 20th and got married November 25th. Uh, the unfortunate part, see in most cultures, people live together for years and then they get married. Well, we got married and now we're trying to figure out how to live together. Um, <laughs> my house has been on the market by owner for a few months and there just haven't been any bites because of you know interest rates and the, the price point. My mom is an agent and so she just listed it two weeks ago and we've since had a couple of showings but the goal is to sell my house and then she's gonna move up from las vegas and we'll live probably somewhere in davis county but i'm now trying to figure out the next chapter of life right trying to navigate the waters of being a stepfather and taking all these powerful lessons that i learned from jana with jana all those years into this next relationship yeah. You're really just at the beginning stages of this new relationship too. It's kind of a baby yeah. marriage just a few months in, Absolutely. which is exciting. And how has that process been for you of opening up your heart? Like, did you notice there were different stages to it? Not really. It was quite 
instantaneous. I think a lot of it has to do with meeting the right person mm -hmm. who has the keys to unlock my heart. <laughs> and I just didn't find her yet. Right. But I honestly feel like that's why I strung her out. I'm putting that in air quotes because I couldn't have pursued anything a year prior because my heart just was not ready. And I was just immensely grateful that when I called her to go to that concert a year ago in November, that she was still single, mm -hmm. right? I thought for sure she'd been swooped up and she did a fair amount of dating in those five years since her divorce, but it wasn't meant to be, it was uh, meant to be us. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning of last year, closing in on the second anniversary of Jenna's passing, there was just this release where I felt like, I think I'm ready to pursue something if it's right. And yeah. it was right there in front of me. Yeah. Uh, it happened pretty quickly. Wow. That's amazing. I want to interject this thought because it's something important to our family. We try to keep Jenna's memory alive in many different ways because she was cycling. I mean, I feel guilty because I'm the cyclist. I'm a triathlete. I do a lot of competitive cycling. I'm out almost every day in the summer. And here it was, you know, Jenna's maybe second ride of the year. Mm. And her life was taken an enormous amount of guilt that it wasn't me, right? I'm the one who just based on the hours that I'm out there, probably deserved it. We uh, have instituted an annual ride in her name mm. that happens near July 8th when it happened in the same area. So in that same farmland out west of Ogden, we have a 25-mile ride that we invite the cycling community to get involved in. And we made these blue bracelets, latex bracelets that say on one side, love like Jana." and uh, share the road. Oh, okay. Oh, nice. And it helps to fund a scholarship foundation that was set up by a dear friend and teacher at Weber High School where my kids okay. went to school. A couple of days after the accident, he had reached out to me and said, hey, Todd, would you be okay if we set up a scholarship fund in your wife's name? Is that something that you'd want to do? And I said, absolutely. What a great idea. And we encouraged people in lieu of flowers, you know, with a funeral to donate and people were so generous. Mm. There's right now over $25,000 in that fund that earns interest. And then every year, the goal is about this time of year, uh, by the end of March, we choose two performing arts students from Weber High, okay. a girl and a boy, who apply for this scholarship. And then they get, I mean, it's not a ton, but every little bit helps. They get at least $1,000 scholarship okay. in Jenna's name. And uh, we've had enough donations and interest that we're now increasing those two scholarships to 1500 and I hope in the next couple of years we'll go up okay. to a couple thousand but this ride gives people another chance to donate we don't charge people for it uh, we give people free refreshments uh, goodies food to eat on their ride bracelets yeah. t-shirts and whatnot and then they just donate uh, to the scholarship yeah. and that keeps it going okay so what a great way to honor your wife's memory when is the ride? Is it kind of the same every year? Or it's usually the second Saturday in July. In July. Okay. Second Saturday in July. Okay. Here's another thought I had on why we put this on there. And this is from my journal entry. Love like Jenna and share the road. The second message I thought would be a good reminder for everyone that we should strive to move carefully down the road in our cars, driving a truck, walking, riding a bike, whatever, and to watch out for each other so everyone gets home safely. Mm -hmm. I came to realize it's also a metaphor for life. We're all headed down this road, hopefully keeping others in mind as we travel on, 
being respectful of the space others need and supporting one another where we each require help and assistance. And so sharing the road is, you know, sharing life together. And her favorite color was blue. So hence the royal blue color of the bracelet. That is awesome. I love it. I like the metaphors. That's what I do for a living. It's kind of an occupational <laughs> hazard as we teach a lot of metaphors. Yeah. Julie <laughs> loves metaphors. Way. I love metaphors too. She's a therapist. So she, she it's works a great with, way yeah. for learning and change and growth. So it's, yeah. that's awesome. Was your wife into performing arts? Yes. So we both sang. She was like the star of her high school musicals. I sang uh, growing up in high school and college, uh, sang with her father in the Tabernacle Choir uh, for oh, four wow. years. And uh, we both performed together here and there, Christmas shows and family gatherings and whatnot. She and my daughter have more recently done some musical theater together, and all of my kids are into musical theater. So we felt it was a good idea to do something for those kids who are going into the performing arts. That's awesome. That is really cool. Well, I think it's probably a pretty good time to start wrapping up. Do you have any advice or anything that you would have either to somebody who's suddenly lost somebody really close to them or maybe even for people who are trying to blend families and stuff like that? <laughs> I think that one is another podcast. Yeah, and I probably need a few more months, if not years of experience to be qualified <laughs> yeah. on that one. But it is kind of interesting when you're uh, looking for companionship, swiping up, swiping down, whatever. You're not swiping up saying, oh, that looks like a great family to support, right? <laughs> even though that's kind of how things play out. And I'm so blessed and grateful to have Tasha and her kids in my life, you look for companionship, but along with that comes exactly what you need to grow in the way that you were meant to grow. And if I can just weave that into any advice, it might be look for what you're learning through the process. Don't neglect to become at some point stronger, more resilient, to have more perspective. You know, grief is a constant companion. I mean, you see how close to the surface it is for me today. It's always lurking around the corner, um, demands all of my attention at some times. And it's right there with grief is anger, resentment, bitterness, betrayal. But I don't let those take center stage. You know, we have a choice how we respond to grief, not to minimize the need to be sad, but we all have the choice to learn and to grow and to see how my grief is putting others in a position to be more sensitive to the growth in our relationship that is possible. You know, we grieve so painfully because we loved mm -hmm. so deeply. I have to be grateful for this grief because it's a reflection of the love that we shared all those years. You know, our, our marriage wasn't perfect. It's easy to deify someone after they pass and be like, oh, you know, we were perfect. She was perfect. But we weren't. But you know, we lived more, I think, adventure and, and love uh, and companionship in those 25 years than a lot of people get in a lifetime. And so I have to look back on that and realize that the grief is coming from all of that you know, beautiful life that we shared together. A leader of our church once said after he lost his wife, the only way to take sorrow out of death is to take love out of life. I'm not willing to do that. I love that. I like to talk to people about how we can develop a positive relationship with our grief. And I think that's exactly what you're speaking to, that you can be grateful 
for the grief that you have because it is a direct reflection of the love that you shared. And that grief journey is going to look different for everyone and every stage of it's going to look a little bit different for you. It would be really sad if I weren't sad. Yeah, it would. And it's okay to be sad. It's okay to have those feelings. And I love how you talk about the array of all of the emotions that you experience. You know, it's a compilation and, you know, that's the human experience that we do. We don't have just one experience that we're navigating at a time. We have this beautiful array that helps us to learn and grow through all the challenges that we have. It's very well put. Yeah. I used to hear people use the cliche, you know, uh, time heals all wounds, all pain. I think there's maybe some truth to that, but I think more accurately, at least in my experience, it's not that the grief has lessened. I think it's just as heavy as the day she left us, but our capacity to carry that grief grows to where we don't notice it as much. It's still there but I have become stronger and therefore I notice it less. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. That's kind of been something I've been talking about a lot in my life lately is increasing my capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've said that exact phrase in other episodes. So we have, yeah, we have, which is really great. Well, thanks for the invitation to share. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate it so much. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's so helpful to learn from someone who has been able to go through something so hard and how they have been able to navigate that. And I love how you've been able to kind of conceptualize these ideas and some of the writings that you shared, because it's hard, right? These things you've experienced are really hard. And I don't know that most of us are going to make it through this life without facing the really hard at some point. And I think it helps us to be able to hear and share these stories well thank you thank you so much listeners for joining us today we're so grateful that we were able to share todd's story with you today and you can connect with us on facebook and instagram or email us at ycjpodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear more from you and more of your thoughts on this episode and other episodes that we've shared with you today And we hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week. Bye.